You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Nipe here with always... Typical idea. Today, we're going to be doing Carved, a slit Mouth Woman, the 2007 horror film all the way from Japan. I'm super excited about it. I'm super excited that we're getting out of North America for a bit because we did a Canadian film, a very American film, another Canadian film. Let's just get out of here. Yeah. My love of horror from Asia is legendary and... I'm assuming it's legendary because everyone in my life hears about it all the time. Yeah, you're a legend among men, that's for sure. So yes, your love of Asian cinema is legendary, Wes. (laughs) So every time uh, we get to a movie that I'm going to pick, I always try to say like, well, I better not just pick some J-horror or something like that because that's kind of what I want to do. And so many of these movies don't get seen so and i'm always like yay wes's pick good i hope it's an asian horror film and it probably will be (laughs) well i got a big backlog but i definitely wanted to do carved for a while and i'm glad because i'd never seen it before so Mm -hmm. i'm I'm excited do i look excited yeah i feel excited you want to well no i'm trying to calm down because we do have a little bit of housekeeping um not really because we have no questions we have no mailbag we have no fun stuff like that no, we don't. And I'm not really big on horror news necessarily, because if you wanted to listen to horror news, you could go to any number of podcasts. If you wanted to actually listen to interesting horror news, you could go to Bind Torture Cast. And Bind Torture actually... Cast tells you not only a bunch of interesting horror news, but my favorite section of the show mm-hmm. is when they tell me what DVDs and Blu-rays are coming out, because holy fuck, do I like to buy shit. <laughs> <laughs> I figured that would be your favorite segment. Yeah, for sure. I was always concerned about doing horror news on the show because we were so infrequent with recording stuff. And especially when we were like, okay, this is going to be a show. Yeah. We didn't know if we were going to do this weekly or bi-weekly or whatever. And my fear was always dating ourselves. Like, you know, you do horror news and then all of a sudden you just fossilize. No, really, it's true. And we... We don't cover uh, things that are recent at all. So why peg something that dates the show when the title usually doesn't date the show? So why would we want to do that? I, 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 I don't think it fits into our show anyway. But then again, sometimes, like, we do mention things that are going on, like... When we're attending conventions, when friends are up to things. Yeah, that kind of stuff is important. I do feel that... As part of the Horror Plus family, mm-hmm. it is our job to help promote each other and also talk about things that do affect us. Or... And we do have our fingers on the pulse and our ears to the ground and our Ouija boards at the ready. So we definitely are paying attention to, to horror news, even though we don't bring it to the show. Yeah. And it's not necessarily horror news, and I'm not really going to get into my opinion on things like this because I don't feel that it's my place, and that's my personal opinion on these these things that have mm-hmm. been happening. There's just some cool horror news, and the biggest cool horror news, and it's not horror film news, it's not a release, it's not a director doing something, it's a journalist, and it's journalism news, horror journalism news, which is mm-hmm. far more interesting to me, and I feel has a little bit of a place because we both come from a place of horror and journalism it's true you definitely have a lot of 
credits to your name for horror journalism. Um, and I still do um, some horror entertainment writing for TV media. Not so much right now because work's been super busy, so writing hasn't been on my plate, but it will be. There's some mm. horror stuff coming up there and with Ottawa Horror. With Ottawa Horror as well. My, I myself for horrormovies.ca where I wrote reviews as Dead Air and I also did some top 10 lists. And then, of course, the spottedpictures.net originally was just written reviews and also i tackled some news bits here and there so yeah it depends on what strikes your fancy too because our job isn't as horror news reporting there's lots of that there's lots of different avenues for that yeah um but the big news really is uh chris alexander stepping down as editor-in-chief of fangoria magazine and opinions and speculation on where he's going next and the reasons behind all, all of that is really a fascinating world that we're not going to talk about because our opinions are our own and it's some it's pretty fresh news right so mm-hmm. uh there's no point in really getting into that but mm-hmm. there is a three-year story to be told leading up to not leading up to that necessarily because it could or could not have anything to do with his decision to move on to whatever it is that he's doing next mm-hmm. and it's no one's business, really, when people come and go from publications. It happens, and it happens quite often. Um, a lot of the things that have sparked questions about the ethics of horror journalism, you can find out a lot of that information just online. I uh, can see a lot of someone, my friend Dave Pace's personal uh, interest and journey through this whole Fangoria and even Rue Morgue and other magazines um, and other podcasts as well on La Politique Psychotronique is his website and he's got a really good post, the final post, because that will not be an active website anymore. A really good final post talking a lot about uh, Chris Alexander as an editor. Yes. And it's not all rainbows and lollipops. No. It's really not. Um, There's a good thread on the mortuary forums as well right now. There's a few threads dedicated to this conversation that's going on um but where my interest lies in the hugest way from the beginning about three years ago there were some plagiarism questions brought up um not only with fangoria magazine but other magazines and an entire book that never got published by leanne spider baby mm-hmm. um there had been plagiarism from uh i don't know about other publications but a lot of uh bloggers a lot of online uh journalists had yes. had their work taken away and used and uncredited and given a new byline under Leanne Spider Baby. So that's really what sparked a lot of my interest in it, coming from the viewpoint of someone who really believes there should be a very high ethical standard in journalism. I'm not against things like licensing journalists. I, I'm a proponent of that, and that extends to horror journalism. Mm-hmm. Regardless of how serious other people take it, journalism's journalism. I think news reporting's news reporting. And if you're going to report news, you need to do it in an ethical way. You need to not plagiarize. I think that most people who get involved in blogging, who are really conscious about treating it seriously as journalism, go out of their way to make sure that they are coming into things with the freshest perspective as they possibly can. And I think uh, just to the spider baby thing, coming from the perspective of a blogger who was paranoid at the idea that someone would think that I had ripped something off. Yeah. When I went to go see movies, 
because of my work schedule, I never would see things. Uh, I'd see things on the premiere date, but rarely would I ever see things early. A couple of times I was given some screeners and some press passes occasionally, but most of the time I would leave work, go to the absolute first showing on a Friday morning or afternoon that I could to go see a movie, and then I would immediately go home and sit down and I'd write my review. I would not... In a bubble, like in, in a cone in a, of silence. In, in absolute cone of silence. Yeah. I would not... I would shove a newspaper out of my face if it had a review. If I even saw the title of the movie that I was going to go see the next day. I, I was just like, I cannot read other reviews. I don't want it to fucking poison my mind. And then you end up writing something that even remotely sounds like... I'm ripping somebody off. And so when the Spider Baby stuff broke and the idea that somebody writing for these magazines, what I coveted so much was taking from people who, like you, like me. Yeah, and like me too at the time. And I'm doing this for free. I'm paying for the movies for free. Obviously, very generous donations from people for at the website contributed in those days when I was extremely broke. Uh, contributed to movie tickets and DVD purchases and, you know, keeping the lights on on the website and stuff like that. Obviously, I wasn't doing it without help, but I also wasn't getting fucking really paid to do it. No, and not having, like, um, a fairly popular webcast, not having, uh, being able to write for many magazines. Pretty much, I'm pretty sure at the time, anything she would have submitted to anybody would have been printed because she was in demand. And people were paying attention to her and... Mm -hmm. People viewed her as some sort of authority. Um, and then to, to find out that not only was she taking so much from bloggers, and not just paraphrasing things, just straight up copy-pasting. Yeah. And Blatantly. Yeah. Like, holy. Uh, yeah. And then the, the rumor that so much of her book that was supposed to come out with St. Martin's was is the same story. It's fully plagiarized. And then the other, I don't know if it's substantiated or not, because I've never read it or done the research, but I've heard from enough good sources that her original uh, film studies thesis was plagiarized as well. So it just really, really drove home that this wasn't an isolated incident. And, Mm. you know, the scary thought of, well, how many other uh, writers pull this kind of shit, right? And then you flash forward a little bit to the beginning of the Chris Alexander um, and questions about ethics in journalism. Mm. And temper all of this with the opinion that many other people have that who gives a fuck? It's not journalism. It's blood and guts. Who cares? So temper everything I'm saying with that opinion on the other side, right? Yes. In before, who gives a fuck? Anyway, (laughs) he was writing stuff. uh, He was reviewing his own stuff and writing things of unpopular opinion under pseudonyms within Fangoria magazine. And the, the cute... As the editor-in-chief. Yeah, as the editor-in-chief, using a pseudonym at the time, Ben Cortman and probably others. I'm not, you know, that clear on if you, again, if you want more backstory about all of that mess, and it's a muddy mess at that. It's a very muddy... La muddy. Politique Psychotronique really does um, cover a lot of the dirt. Mm-hmm. It's not a mudslinging site necessarily, although it is not... A positive story but who wants a positive story right anyway um so yeah it was all very interesting to me so now lately with his stepping down there's just been a lot of opinion floating around and there has been super interesting to me and i thought it'd be super interesting to our listeners because even though you don't come here for news we are newsy minded individuals ourselves we are there's um 
um, like I said, many, many threads on the mortuary forms. But this one, and this was from the beginning when I had first had anything to say about these issues, where it's the ethics of it all that would get under my skin. It's the fact that these horror magazines, whether you are of the camp of, it doesn't matter, it's not journalism, it's just blood and guts, who cares? Or on the other spectrum, it's super important horror information that we need to hold them to the same standard as any journalist. And if you own a magazine, especially if you're getting any sort of public funding for it, you need to be accountable. Um, I'm closer to that camp, of course, as a journalist mm-hmm. myself. But there was a quote recently. There was quite a lot that Stuart Feedback Andrews had to say Yes. on this. He does have a lot of uh, posts, and they're very long, very well written. He has a very fascinating opinion, very strong opinion. Uh, but this one paragraph jumped out yesterday. So Feedback says, But for many horror fans, they don't see this side and they don't want to see it. And I understand that. I think most fans want to remain in blissful ignorance. I know I was blissfully ignorant back in the day when I was reading Fango under Bob Martin's reign. To me, anyone associated with the mag was an icon, and the figures celebrated within its pages were nothing less than gods. Nothing less than gods, okay. Mm -hmm. And that is a lot of what I feel, why it's important for them to own up to their own ethics, own up to their own integrity. As publishers, editors-in-chief, writers, contributors, anything to do with a published horror magazine. These are journals of record. These are like our national newspapers. These are things that people read and quote and cite and use in research, use in empirical research for things like thesis, papers, studies, things that are becoming very important, especially with uh, women, the women's studies in horror. Yes. Um, psycho and social economics of horror and how it relates to our daily lives, how it relates to viewers' lives, how it relates to the bankroll, how it relates to what gets released, how it relates to what's getting written. All of these things. Horror magazines are very, very important. Horror magazines now have been around for many years and they are part of our library systems. So to me, it's important that these things at least have a fucking bit of fact. At least a bit of fucking integrity, right? Because if this were any other genre, if this were any other magazine, if this were any other magazine on any other topic, this would be a huge scandal. Mm -hmm. Three years ago, it would have been a huge scandal when it sort of first came to light that anything that was ripped off, plagiarized, or just flat out lies that made it to print would have caused an uproar. Mm-hmm. unfortunately, because it's horror and no one cares. It doesn't, right? But I don't agree with that. And I think that these are journals of record and should be held accountable as I think that when you're talking about a horror publication, you owe it to the people reading those magazines and accepting the fact that it is biblical truth for them. Even, even, even from an outside source, this is one of the things that I learned in radio years ago. It was like, you don't have to care about something. But you have to acknowledge that other people care deeply about it. Mm-hmm. So you can't... The I don't buy the argument that it's just horror journalism, so who fucking cares? Because there's people that do fucking care. And what um, Feedback said was completely accurate in that you have people who fucking worship these writers. Who, oh, completely, yeah. Th- because this is their access point. This is their fucking 
these are their fucking profits. These are the people that are their fucking bridge between the movies and the shit that they love. And when they go to uh, festivals of fear or whatever the fuck, and then you're surrounded by these people, you feel finally like part of this big community or, or any sort of like horror convention. That's why you fucking go to them. And it's right? and, looking and, at the journalists, sort of almost like war correspondents in a way, and I'm sure yeah. Tom Savini would get a kick out of that. It's sort of like <laughs> these guys going to the front lines where you can't go or yeah. like can't go for very long. And, and then they, they're instantly fucking awesome to you. Yeah. It, almost in the same way that, you know, radio DJs were looked at in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. And then when that those curtains got parted and then you kind of realize that, you know, the people in radio are just kind of... They're not as cool as you think. Yeah. I mean, they don't live the lifestyle that you think they do. And the same thing with any sort of journalism. I mean, there are definite moments where you're glammed out to the nines and you're surrounded by horror icons and you see... And yeah, you know, people, certain mainstays in the industry know who you are and you have access points to movies and shit like that. But at the end of the day, you're just there's just men and women just like you. Just regular people, really, truly. And, and 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 on the one hand, I understand like nobody's perfect and people make mistakes and you know, if people are just like, well, this is it. and and sometimes there's like this air of, well, this is just how the business is. This is just how it works. Back in the day with radio when when you would give a radio DJ some swag or something cool or some money, Play my play my clients track a bunch. You like it, right? You like it. Now you definitely like it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and so and like they had to put like that was so that ran so rampant that they had to fucking like now radio DJs get fired for that sort of shit. Yeah. Now um, they had to automate everything so it's out of the control of the DJ entirely. Exactly. Yeah. But like when it wasn't, oh fuck man, that shit was all over the place. And it's yeah. the same with any industry. It's like you can grease the wheels. You can be really cynical about it, but I don't think that putting your head in the sand is the answer either, pretending it's not. No, it's not. And I'm not meaning to call out something like for, you know, I don't want any 15-year-old horror fan who's flipping through whatever magazine they choose to flip through that the curtain should be parted for them. No way. No. Because that would devastate me. Because Like like 15-year-old me reading horror magazines that my dad used to pick up for me at South Bank News uh, back in the day. All I wanted to do was was flip through cool articles in Fango and see the centerfolds, the centerfolds, yeah. the, the Night of the Living or Return of the Living Dead three centerfold. Oh my God, she's so pretty. But <laughs> it's <laughs> um, true. I know. But or or you know, just get some inside dope on some movies, and then you feel really smart, and you feel like now now you're the cool guy in your bunch of friends because they'll say like hey man this uh pumpkin head's coming out and you're like oh i know a little bit about that and then you you rip off some fact and then everyone's like oh man wester knows a lot i'm like i sure do and, <laughs> and so you you rely on that because or reading about uh films that you'll never see which exactly is now i of course turn to podcasts that podcasts, will tell me about yes. Films that uh, I may not see or haven't seen and stuff like that. But it used to be magazines like, oh, I'm not going to go watch this. I'm not interested in that. But I will definitely read all this. Or a new genre when they did a bunch of Sushi Typhoon stuff in Rue Morgue. I was definitely, definitely exactly that. Because it was semi-new to me, right? But uh, it seems to have been infecting all of them. This this problem, unfortunately. And the curtains have been parted for anyone that's paying attention. And sure, if you want to have your head in the sand you know, be my guest, but 
I can't breathe with my head there. Yeah. Which sounds dirty, but <laughs> I don't like having a mouthful of sand. We love to have conversations here at the Dead Air Podcast. Oh, yes. What's to be done about that Fangoria magazine? Not serious horror business there. <laughs> serious horror business. I'm excited to see who comes in as the next editor-in-chief. That's what I'm excited about. It should be interesting. Yeah. And we await on bated breath. In a way. And on the other hand, who cares? It's just horror. It's just blood and guts. Who gives a fuck? So let's talk about this movie. Carved, a slipmouth woman. Mm-hmm. Carved, the, the slipmouth woman, as, as you just said. 2007 Japanese horror film. Yeah, it's based on a urban legend way cooler than Slender Man. The urban legend itself, Kuchisaki Ona, is about a woman who was mutilated by her husband, uh, had a slit cut in her mouth, and has returned as a vengeful spirit. If you see her, she'll ask you a question. Am I pretty? And she has a mask covering her slit mouth at this mm, time. Yeah, she has like a mask, a surgical mask yeah. covering her mouth, wearing a long coat, long stringy hair. And if you say no, well, she'll kill you. And if you say yes, she'll take off her mask to reveal her horribly disfigured face and say, how about now? And if you say yes... She will cut your mouth to look like hers with a long pair of scissors that she carries with her. But if you say no, she'll cut you right in half with those same scissors. Right in half. Right in half. Well, they're big scissors. That's got to be painful. I don't know. Like, I feel like if you got cut in half by giant scissors, it might hurt. It might be over so quick. Well, does she start like Vlad and Paler style up the crotch or anus and start cutting slowly up that way? Or does she start like at your head? Does she kill you first and then cut you in half? Just kind of hang out with your body? Because it would take quite a while. But it occurred to me getting cut right in half with scissors. I just imagine somebody getting bisected. Just right, right across right the th- gut? Right in the, the soft spot? Yeah. Like sort of like that guy that drove a motorcycle right through a moose? Yeah, and that's what it always is. You know, you can you, you can run from her. I was thinking cut in half the fun way. But yeah, because if you turn around and run from her, she just appears in front of you. She's a ghost, right? So yeah. she can, like, distance doesn't fucking play a, a factor in it at all. She's just there. But you can... <laughs> you can confuse her. You, you can her. confuse her. Which is the fun. Like, at first, when you read the first, the initial urban myth, which came to light in this 1979. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's an 80s uh, myth. Really. Mm-hmm. Um, in a place that's very steeped in myth and folklore. It's one of the more, the newer revenge spirits. Um, yes. So when you read the initial one, it's that's pretty scary and creepy. And it sounds just like a mythological Japanese uh, folktale. Yes. But then when you get to the, you can confuse her. <laughs> you can. You can throw her off the trail yeah. a little bit. You can either inform her, eh. If, you, if, she, if, you, if she asks you if she's pretty... And you tell her that she's average yeah, or, or so-so. It's okay. It's so You're so. all right, I guess. You know, eh. Average. Five out of ten. Yeah. You, you throw her off and she doesn't really know how to respond. And so while she's thinking about it, you can make your escape. Apparently, you can confuse her long enough with that that you have a chance to get away. Because she's like, am I pretty? I don't even know. What's this person? <laughs> she's got to, like, take a second 
to, to, to like text her friends and be like, if you asked a guy if you were pretty and he said you were average, what does that mean? What am I supposed to do with am that? Am I crazy? Am I crazy? Is he saying I'm ugly? Or be saying I'm pretty? I can't I don't understand. Tell. <laughs> Just waiting, waiting for like their Facebook messenger to go. Like, and you oh. run away real fast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you run away while she's, confused. while she's doing that. Or, and this is my favorite one. You can get her to leave you alone if you tell her that you're busy. <laughs> and she'll apologize. Yeah. If she's she's coming up there, imagine this. So this slit-mouthed woman with a surgical mask and giant scissors comes up to you, and she's going to just fucking kill you. Am I pretty? And you're like, well, I got to be somewhere. And then she's like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't know. Please. I'm so rude. My apologies. My apologies. Very, very for interrupting your day. <laughs> Carry on. Carry on. It's very, it's very uh, a Japanese etiquette. Oh yeah, type we scenario. can relate to this here in Canada. That who's are of... super apologetic. Oh yeah, or if because a Canadian ghost might come to kill you, but if you say that you're being awfully rude, murderous Canadian ghost, and we'll be like, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'll leave. Yeah. How rude of me. <laughs> I'll go pick on someone else. Um, there, apparently you can throw candies too. And like a vampire almost she has get to, all OCD she's like, and be like, pick them all like, up. Christopher, I yeah. feel like as this legend goes on, it'll turn into, well, the, the car, the carved up woman can't like cross running water. Or, <laughs> <laughs> you can't, she can't be in direct sunlight. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, we're making jokes, but this urban legend swept the Nagasaki prefect and became a really big deal that in real life. They allowed, there was such like pandemonium supposedly around this that uh, children would come home from school in groups and the schools would allow children to get out early because it was said that around 5 p.m. she would make her appearance in a park. There was reports of people dressed up as this person and there's still confusion as to whether it were actual sightings or if somebody were copycatting and trying to scare people. So they, they were definitely scared they were terrified of this for real Mm -hmm. and i liken it to slender man because that is our most contemporary urban legend that Mm -hmm. has swept the nation so yeah the slender man is fucking everywhere yeah and everyone seems to know not only from the original creepypasta but a lot of the marble hornet stuff and then the films that are coming out now so this followed the almost exact same trajectory except that it was based in a in an urban myth that came to light in 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 real reality, not like in, not not on the fiction. internet. Now, yeah. had the internet existed in the nineteen seventy late nineteen seventies, early nineteen eighties, uh, this might be as well known as Slendy as Slendy because it would have been able to travel that much further and that much faster. Yeah, so it's really cool. This movie came out in two thousand and seven. Like we said, it has a lot of similarities to the urban legends, but there are some significant differences as well. Yeah, I'm almost a midpoint change that irked me a little, but hey, whatever. It it's does. all in fictionalizing this semi-fictional story, right? I'm all for creativity. But it does follow what is kind of a, a very typical revenge spirit story. Yes. Uh, it has a lot to do with her questioning her beauty and demanding an answer from you. It has um, a lot to do with her amassing some sort of 
souls or power. She's usually targeting children, a lot like Slenderman. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is a really fascinating story. So I can see why they would easily make a really fascinating film. Oh, it begs. It. it begs to be made into a movie. It really, really does. And I like the look of her, too. Um, really similar. You might know, like, the slit mouth look, the split ear to ear, very popular in the Chelsea Grin look. Yes. Or um, there's another term of Glasgow smile, something like that. Um, oh, this, I can't remember the name of the gang that used to give people Chelsea grins, but either way, uh, very popularized with the Black Dahlia murders where uh, Elizabeth Smart was cut ear to ear in very similar fashion and used a lot in, in popular myth as one of the worst ways to disfigure somebody's face. Yes. Incredibly painful. The Joker is another example. The Joker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's definitely a, a very good modern example of, of a lot of people have seen that. Yeah. And it becomes a lot to do with their being. And there is a story behind it. Funnily enough, with the Joker, we have many versions of that story. Which is cool. Yeah. I like that a lot. And Elizabeth Smart, of course, we have the only version. She's dead. She got caught ear to ear by the Black Dahlia murderer. Yeah. Whoever the hell that would be. Um, Now, of course, it is an amazingly creepy look. And we have a lot of different versions of that through history that are all scary that are all creepy and that all have these really like very unique stories behind them so right away when you said the slit mouth woman i was like i'm in <laughs> freaking right yeah yeah it's really she doesn't really have a, an amazing look about her from the first moment when you see her in the film and it's early. Yeah. They don't bury the lead at all. When this film starts out, you were getting a bunch of conversations from a bunch of different families all surrounding this urban legend. And kids talking at school, kids talking over the dinner table, kids mm-hmm. talking about the slip mouth woman mm-hmm. is back. And we've seen we've seen this type of stuff before Ringu comes to mind where uh, a news reporter is interviewing a bunch of school children about gossip and urban legends and I heard this and I heard that uh, really emphasizing about how news of this revengeful spirit seems to be traveling very quickly word of mouth and how it's on the tip of everyone's tongue and then all of a sudden a great earthquake happens all you see every every family that was talking about it is now sort of hunkering down for the earthquake and the slip mouth woman resurrects. We don't see where she re- is resurrecting from, although we return to it later. And she is very decomposed, uh, very rough looking. And then the next time we see her, well, she's back to her lovely self yeah, like you had said, one of the better-looking revenge spirit ghosts that you've seen. When you say it like that, I sound like a bit of a creep. But... No, it wasn't <laughs> creepy at all. And you're totally right. She does look, She look, aside from the horrific wound across her face yeah. and her fucking creepy eyes. I like the eyes. I thought that was cool. She's was... perfectly preserved. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very lovely. But she's 30 years old, right? Like, she's been dead 30 years. She's 30 years dead, actually, not 30 years old. 30 years dead. Yeah. So when the, when you first see her, that I was instantly impressed yeah. with how 
creepy and corpsey she looked. And I, yeah. I really enjoyed the look of her as dead. And I was hoping that, you know, maybe there would be some points where she was attacking someone and would show her true face, what she actually looked like mm-hmm. as a decomposed ghost. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, it's it's sort of bookended with that look. Yes. So we do get, we're instead we're treated to this really pretty, really actually very pretty woman. Yeah. Asking you if she's pretty with that horrific slice. There's a group of children waiting in the park for 5 p.m. to roll around. When it does, sure enough, the woman appears. And no longer looking very corpsey, she looks alive, honestly. Yeah, stringy hair, long coat, sure, but yeah. She definitely has, what's that, like an iridescent quality to her where she does kind of look like... Otherworldly. Otherworldly. Yeah. Ethereal. But at the same but that's mostly just the pale complexion combined with her now very pale eyes. And the fact that she moves so purposefully that she definitely seems not normal. I can give her that. Yeah. One of the kids is taken. And the other boys run. And then this starts an absolute panic. And at first the movie presents itself as if authorities, everyone, is treating this as the slitmouth woman has returned, this is the spirit, the vent, revenge spirit herself. So it's very ass backwards from a lot of other revenge spirit movies. Typically speaking, when you're dealing with Japanese ghost stories, much like any ghost stories, there's a very slow build to it where people are pretty incredulous. Why would, in our modern society, we believe in a ghost or a revenge spirit or something? You spend Uh, a lot of time convincing those around you that this actually exists. And and a lot of investigation, which in ghost stories is my favorite aspect of it. When they go to the library? I love the library stuff. I love sifting through the microfiche. I love finding the wizened old experts or finding old family members who know what happened. That I like it when it's fed really well, not an expo dump so much. But yeah, yeah. I love that research bit. And and, and the longer the longer it's going out throughout the movie, some people might think that's boring. I don't think it's boring. I like it too. Maybe it's because I just think that fucking shit is cool. Like I I just like the idea of dusty books and bifocals and like microfiche and all that shit. This movie doesn't do it in that fashion whatsoever. And honestly, I'm not going to say it's weaker for it. I just might have liked it better had they done the slow burn to it. While also splicing in her attacks. So to keep kind of things interesting for people who maybe watch these movies and think they're a little slow. Because uh, Carved, what I will say, she attacks so frequently that you're not really left sitting bored. No, not at all. It's not just all uh, like creepy suspense drama at all. No, there not is whatsoever. enough attack. Yeah, she is definitely plucking kids daily off of the street. You... And you even have an idea of who she's coming for too. Even from the very first girl that got snatched from that park, she had said that it's probably going to be me. And they all knew that someone was going to be targeted. They were already uh, sending the kids home early from school in groups mm-hmm. on this day. So, but even though. They, at first, seem to be treating it as if it is the revenge spirit. About midway point of the movie, you are 
given the sense that, oh, well, they don't really think it's the revenge spirit. They think it's someone who's dressing as the, the urban legend and snatching kids. We know that this legend has been around for 30 years. And so this would be a resurgence of that urban legend's popularity. One of the children's fathers indicates that when he was a teenager, that's when they first started hearing about it. And its origin point was indeed this area and that they are at. And in real life, too, which yes. is the coolest part about this film mm-hmm. is that with that. And it's that really boils down to that point when that the dad is like, yeah, when I was in high school, that was when this all began. And I remember it very clearly. And they, the parents believe their kids, yeah. whether they use it as a th- as an idle threat to make sure that they clean the room or eat the food. Um And even say, I'll slit your mouth, which is just horrible. But the parents, (laughs) we'll get into how horrible some of the parents are. But um, the the parents do believe the children. And even one of them was like, oh, will you go shopping for me? And her daughters are like, no, the slit mouth woman, it's almost five o'clock. And she's like, okay, I'll go. (laughs) Like, no argument, totally believes them. This is probably really similar to what was going on in real reality in 1979. So when that father is like, yeah, this was happening, you do a little bit of math, you're like 2007, 1979, yeah, he would have been in high school then if this were even real. Mm-hmm. So that gives a really cool sense of veracity to this whole story that I mm-hmm. really, really, really enjoyed. Yeah, and the idea how, like, once this started again, they kind of went back into the routine of like, okay, the kids will go home early, they'll all go home together, the teachers will escort them to their homes like they had experienced this all before. So it's almost like a movie about the incident 30 years ago coming back and it's actually true. So it's very cool. That being said, there are major differences that we'll get into. First things first, there is an overlaying theme of this movie about parental abuse. Yeah, yeah, and it's very, very clear. We are introduced to a school teacher who is a divorcee. We find out that initially I thought her ex-husband was just being a douche to her <laughs> and saying like, no, 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 your daughter's asleep. Your daughter, her daughter was not asleep when she called Oh, no, he was phone. saying, no, she's awake. She doesn't want to talk to you. Oh, is that what he said? Yeah. I thought, I thought that she said that he had already gone to bed. Well, no, he didn't fib. He was just like, yeah, no, she's awake, but she doesn't want to talk to you at uh, all. Yeah. And as well, anyway, it was still, I was still like, wow, what a jerk. But it turns out that she abused her daughter. She would slap her around and stuff like that. Yeah. Almost, almost as if something was like, like, I don't want to say possessing her, but it was so strange because the scene that we're given, she's very apologetic and regretful for doing it, but it's almost like she couldn't stop herself. Stop it. Like she, she would just slap her daughter. Her very small young daughter, like just smack across the face, and beforehand, with the with the montage of all the families, there's one mother who is threatening her daughter with like, "I'm gonna just give you to the slipmouth woman," and her daughter's just sort of standing there, head bowed in front of her mother. She smacks her in the mouth, and causes hits her so hard that this causes bruises across her face, and she has to wear a surgical mask to school just to hide the the damage to her body. And there's quite a bit of damage. So this has been going on for some time in that particular household, even though the other woman, the the teacher in the story who had hit her daughter seemed shocked that she'd done it herself Mm -hmm. and shocked that she hadn't stopped doing it and very, very remorseful. 
Yeah. Unlike this, this other mother. But then there's other mothers that are shoving their children down to the floor and smacking their children at all, uh, as well. But then at the same time, apologizing and holding them and crying and being upset that they've done that. But then it, doing it again. It's so bizarre. Yeah. Almost as if they just can't control themselves. The The teacher indicates that sometimes you could love your children so much that the passion just builds up inside you and you can't control yourself. And it doesn't even make any sense. Like, I don't understand what the no. fuck that's supposed to mean. But there'd been so much of this imagery, and we're probably 20 minutes into the film by this point when the yeah. teacher says that. The little girl that she's talking to says, I hate my mother. And I expected her to slap her. Yeah. Because that's this world they've built where these mothers slap kids. That's all they do. And whether and, they want to or not or like it or not. And then when she says she hates her mother, she becomes enraged at that idea. Like, what do you mean you hate your like mother? Don't ever say that. Like, you, like your mother beats you. Yeah, you don't like her. That's crazy. Yeah. Also, her daughter hates her. So it's just like this whole, this this theme. It's like, we keep beating on our daughters. Why do they hate us so much? I Very don't. strange. Very strange. Uh social commentary going on there if if that's what it is it might be it could be something like the pressures of everyday life and it turning into abuse to your children in japanese culture i don't know enough about the culture to just to, to comment on it honestly and none of these children had really done anything and none of these mothers were really portrayed as being under a lot of stress either yeah they seem to be pretty happy well-adjusted individuals with good homes good homes good jobs it doesn't seem like they're in high pressure situations the fathers are largely absent but that's not even really brought to the forefront so that doesn't seem to be the issue whatsoever Mm -hmm. which is just a really strange angle but it's all part of this uh like virus if you will of this children being smacked by their mothers and when you go forward about 10 more minutes in the film, there's an introduction of this new character. This other teacher, male teacher at the school, uh, stops the female teacher who had smacked her own daughter, who had also consoled another student who had been beaten by her mother and subsequently kidnapped by the slipmouth woman. And he stops her and he's like, I want to know what you saw because I want to know if you saw the slipmouth woman. Because even though a lot of people, she is a really visible ghost. A lot of people see her. The people who get kidnapped see her. People know exactly what she was, she looks like. But yeah. this female teacher had been with the little girl when she was taken. Yeah, the, the little girl that was taken, Mika was her name. Yeah, Mika. She got taken. And that kind of becomes the main child that they're looking for. It's interesting because it's reminded me a lot of introducing these tropes into the, into these ghost stories like finding a family member or an old wizened expert or somebody that apparently has a lot of information except since they did it in such a backwards way now you had essentially their fucking dr loomis coming to her yeah <laughs> but but with barely enough fucking information so it's honestly his introduction into the story is the weakest part of the movie easily the weakest part of the movie because he doesn't really he he he's someone who should have a lot of information initially and what we find out is that he's so interested in the slip mouth woman because it's his mother which of course i called as soon as i saw him you he did. basically walked down the hallway his name's no noboru i believe he, yes 
Um, and he was walking. As soon as he was like, I want to know if you've seen her. I was like, because she's my mom. And she is. It wasn't even like that clearly telegraphed. It was just that why else would he be wanting to know if she's if like, why would he have this photograph why would her. he be so interested? Yeah. He's the only person who's actually seeking these people out instead of just doing news reports or trying to hide their children and, you know, keep everyone under curfew. He's running around the city acting very strange and trying to, like, see her. So, yeah, it was very clear. So even flash forward when they're like, well, where do you think she's taking them? I was like, well, ask Nobru because that's his mom. I mean, he's got to know. And it was only moments later that he had this, like, sort of flash of insight. But, yeah, he is the weakest point. Most interesting point, too, though, because I'm if it's based in a real story that happened in the mid to late 70s that she became a spirit ghost, whatever, in 1979. He's about the right age to if she would have had children. Mm-hmm. Very, very fascinating take. And also where it takes a left turn from the urban myth. Yes. We know. Yeah. From what we know about the urban myth, there was no mention of children or surviving children. And we also don't have a mention of the Slipmouth woman's husband whatsoever. What her marriage situation was isn't indicated. But what no, is there was in- another absent father sort of situation like many of the other mothers that we've met so far. What is indicated is that Nobara was the youngest of three. He had an older sister and an older brother. Both mysteriously went missing. And then he says, in his recollection, very soon she was gone. And now she's back as the Slipmouth woman. Doesn't really offer too much information. No, because his memory is absolute shit. His he memory makes is very absolute clear. Shit. He can't remember a thing to save his life. But I will say, I, I understand that you're like less forgiving on this aspect than I am. Yep. But I think that given the trauma that he endured as a child, I think that he had purposefully suppressed the memories and couldn't access them. Maybe I would give him as much credit as you do if he didn't have such a derp look on his face when he's forgetting these things. That, or maybe it's just conveniently forgetting them and he's protecting his poor mommy ghost. I don't know. But either way, when he's like derp face right before all of a sudden, quote unquote, remembering this stuff, it just... It just bothers me. It just irks me. To me, the most egregious thing is, honestly, the fact that several points throughout the movie, including the very beginning, children are saying that this woman's hideout is a place with a red roof. It takes him a good five minutes way later in the movie and a little bit of prompting. And a little bit of prompting. And maybe one or two instances of hardcore derp face for him to remember that is... Childhood home had a red roof. Well, even worse, Mika's mother, who was the abusive woman at the very start of the movie. She has a list of some of the things. because She's collecting information, too. She's collecting lots of information. And she asks a little girl. And the little girl has all this information about the house with the red roof and where the address, what the address is and all the shit. It's literally written on the fucking back of the paper. So she was told this by a child information that she already has. It's written on her fucking paper. Yeah. So I don't understand. Over and over. Encircled. Encircled. <laughs> underlined. <laughs> by her. <laughs> by her. Post-it notes all around it, like the arrow post-it notes. Okay, now Noboru has been thinking about his mother, I'm sure, for quite some time. He went some through orphanage, um, foster homes or whatever, 
But I'm pretty sure in the 30 years, especially because his mom is the Slipmouth woman. And this is a story that's being told by school kids and their, their parents believe that everyone's on high watch for her now that she's returned. It hasn't gone away. No. This has been something that's been part of the, the culture in Nagasaki and the fictional Nagasaki or real um, for like the 30 fucking years he's been alive. Has he never thought about, you know, maybe where she's come from, where she stays, where she's laid to rest? Does he not remember that his childhood house? So if all these kids for probably weeks now have been talking about this house with the red roof and he's been ferreting out information around town, hasn't he given this any thought? That it's his childhood home? Guess not. <laughs> There's Fuck. one extra thing that they add to the movie that is not really indicated in the urban legend whatsoever. The second biggest thing, in my opinion, is that in order to interact with us, because this is a very interactive ghost, Oh, she yeah. can grab people. She appears in the daytime. She has unlimited access to almost anywhere, it seems. And she does this through possession of people. When you are looking at her ghost in its fully fleshed out form where she looks young and alive. Yeah, she has a long hair, big scissors, long coat, mask, or slip mouth. Yeah, and, and virtually looks alive. Yeah. She, is in, she is possessing another person's body. So if you are to vanquish her, to kill her at all, in that state, you're really only killing whoever she's possessing. The very first killing of the slip mouth woman, I wasn't necessarily shocked, but I was semi-taken aback, thinking... Well, how can they kill the Slipmouth woman? Does she just sit up like Kane or something in a second? And then Wes turns to me and says, and credits. <laughs> and this is like 15 minutes in. So I had a laugh. But then it became apparent that this is what she does. Um, because within a moment, they pan back to the dead body and it's a different person. It's mm -hmm. someone's mom. It's someone's mother. Someone that we spent through a little bit of time with in the original montage. And we find out, oh, you get the sense that everybody in the original montage we are going to, is going to be affected by the Slipmouth woman's curse. Yeah. And this family, unfortunately, affected by their mother going out to the store because she has a very bad cough. Yeah. This cough seemed to come out of nowhere. And we also find out that this is the early warning signs that you are about to be possessed by the Slipmouth woman. Yeah, they do that really effectively, and I really, really enjoyed that, even though it has nothing to do with the original urban myth, right? No, it's, it's definitely added for cinematic effect. This is one of the things that they added. This is one of the things that is unique to the story. It was super creative, I thought, and I liked it a lot, especially in a culture that is very densely populated and has, like, you know, definite, like, fear of spreading germs. Uh, just because they live so close, work so close to one another mm -hmm. um, in cl such close proximity that masks and stuff like surgical masks and not coughing on people and washing your hands and keeping your germs to your fucking self is very, very important just culturally. And I wish it was more important worldwide, right? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> The germaphobe Lydia yeah. is informing you all, wash your fucking hands. Yeah, don't cough on me. I'll punch you <laughs> right in the fucking mouth. And then she'll wash her hands. In your blood. Oh, man. I wish. <laughs> oh, no, I don't. That's a horrible thing to say. Anyway, <laughs> carrying on. 
it is a cool cultural statement in that way and it fits really really well and i like that it isn't you know that their eyes start to change or that they start acting like that person and slowly mm-hmm. picking up their uh, idiosyncrasies of personality i like that it's just a cough something so innocuous very mm-hmm. h1n1 right i like yeah. that yeah there's other deviations from that i don't like but that one i really really do yeah, and I and in a lot of ways, I understand, look, you have to change things so the narrative functions a little bit more like drama, but I agree that very seldom has that worked in this movie, the changes that they made, but this change is very interesting. And also, it raises a question which I wish, I fucking wish they spent some time with. Can we defeat her without killing the host body? I don't think that... I thought you were going to say, can we defeat her with Dristan? Dristan, Or NyQuil something. I just... Why not have her... Why not have her possess somebody who you don't want to kill? You really don't want to kill. So now we have to find a way around just stabbing her with something. I think that they had a lot of opportunity. There was people possessed in the movie that had far more of a role... Uh, Mika's mother, for example, mm-hmm. would have been a really great opportunity to like, can we possibly end this without killing the mother? And it would have been great if Mika was the one to do it. I hear here this is the part of the fucking podcast, apparently, where I rewrite what I think should have happened. <laughs> but I just think that since Mika at the very beginning of the movie felt like perhaps her mother is a slipmouth woman, that comes to pass now, in a way that Mika couldn't possibly have known. But it still happens. And wouldn't it have been better if she somehow got the curse off of her mother? Like, don't you think? Like, I don't know. Like, like Find opposed- some way to, you know, exercise her. Or something. Or something. Like, like look, the fucking legend itself has all kinds of dumb shit. That, that <laughs> throw you- some fucking candy. Throw some candy at her. Say, tell her that she's average looking. Something... But show her a mirror. I'd like to try that one. Show her a mirror. Yeah, something that cool. Like if you're if you're inventing shit, anyways. Yeah, yeah. Invent a way to get the curse off of somebody without just killing them. Do you think it's supposed to be like a futile thing? Like you can't. You can't. It's supposed to be entirely futile. It's supposed to be this ghost that just will never give up. And there's absolutely no way you're fucked. You know, you're fucked. Which is very common in Japanese folklore. Especially in these in this type of uh, storytelling, yeah. I mean, like, look at the whole fucking Juan series. It's it, like you know, there's pe- no escape. The, like, it's people like I remember like watching that with somebody. I was like, so what are you supposed to do? And I'm like, what do you mean? I was like, well, everyone who goes into the house, I'm like, right, is fucked. They just die. <laughs> yeah. Like, the, and there's no way around it. There is absolutely no fucking way around it. You go into the house, you die. The second you cross that threshold and you're inside the house, you're you're a corpse. You don't even know it yet. Yeah. I love that aspect of that movie. Some people don't. But, I mean, maybe they're kind of expecting, like, a, a Ringu-type thing where, like, oh, well, you just there's a way around the cursed videotape. There's no way around this. And they try Even to... though there's warning signs, which is really cool. Because you'd like to think, because there's warning signs, there must be a way to circumvent this. Mm-hmm. But no. And I like that. I do like that they give the warning signs before they give the reveal that there are warning signs so that you get to think back to the first time you saw that woman cough and you're like, oh, fuck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the next time you hear someone cough, you're like, oh, Double fuck. fuck. The Slipmouth woman only seems to possess 
women. I don't know if she can't possess men or won't. And every time that the curse gets lifted from that person, it is the result of their death. So you're pretty fucked with this spirit. She And she's going to do what she's going to do. I think the idea of her being so efficient at killing people with those scissors too. Like she's very, like, rem- if you want to see someone remorselessly, like, slap people around and then try to kill them with scissors, man, is this the movie for you. Yeah, she's pretty tough. I like her a lot. I like... <laughs> and this goes back to the fact that, again, this, this series of abuse... um, the abuse that this woman brought on her own three children was crazy. Like they're all just lined up and she just punches them out. Yeah. Right in the face too. It's not like, you know, tying them to a chair or shoving them in a closet or screaming at them or smacking them in the face lightly. Uh, you know, more, you more television friendly parental abuse. It's straight up fucking punching them right in the face. Yeah. And they're all standing in a line, and she's just like, crack. Cr- not it's horrible. Even, she's not even saying anything. And then kick them when they're down. Kicking them, yeah. And she's not even saying anything. No. She's not saying what they've done wrong. She's not, she's coughing. That's the thing. She has an affliction herself, a very bad cough that could be, I don't know if it's asthma or if it was. Supposed- the way she was breathing made me think asthma or it's consumption or something, but yeah. Could be a, a lung uh, disease or something. She's coughing a lot, though. Like pneumonia or something like that? Pneumonia, yeah. It could be something Sounds like that. Like it's pneumonia. not really clear. What is clear is she's fucking crazy mm-hmm. and beating her children. We find out. Because Nobu finally remembers. He finally remembers. After oh. all of this, indi- after, oh, well, didn't you live in a house with a red roof? Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, 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 so they go to the house. It's a very cool, creepy house. I love the art direction for this i do too very very much so it's it's very much in the old japanese style uh, homes in the hills it's very large uh it's a bungalow so there's really only one floor Uh, lots of rooms lots of long hallways and corners everything looks very old weather-worn strange lighting because it's sort of boarded up but sort of not and it's being broken into here and there or at least breached so it's you know trespassable and so the light streaming in from outside kind of gives that patchy look. Very, very cool. When he and the, the school teacher are in the building finally, he cover he comes across an old uh, butcher's knife. Mm-hmm. And finally remembers. It all comes back. What a fucking idiot. Well, give him a break. Sorry. His siblings had gone missing, and then he believed that his mother just sort of went missing. Well... The night his mother went missing, air quotes, is the night where she was having a particularly bad coughing fit. She gave him a pretty good smack, kicked him after he was down. And he was already pretty wounded, so it looked like she'd been beating on him for several, several days or whatever. And she had this moment of lucidity where almost, oh my God, I did it again. I'm afraid that the next time that I go crazy, I'm going to kill you. She's like, oh, I'm like possessed, but not like possessed by like a demon or anything like that. Which, some, like, honestly, the dialogue would indicate that she she believes that she's being possessed by something. But honestly, it's just, she's fucking nuts. She's possessed by hatred, and it is really like uh, double meaning um, dialogue there, and uh, really well written from what I think because we're already. We are the reality now, 30 years later, is that people are being possessed by her. So for her to be like, I feel like I'm possessed, 
is just such a cool origin for her actual being able to possess people. She goes out of the room and comes back with a knife. And she wants her son to not just kill her, to cut her head off. The, the only way that I will stop is if you decapitate me. What was it? Aim for the throat. Aim for my throat. Aim for, Aim my, for throat. my throat. And this is a moment in which the question of am I pretty gets changed. Not just changed, deleted. Deleted. It's never used again never in the rest again. of the film, which made me very sad. It also makes me sad because I think am I pretty is a much better line. Far more poetic. And now her son had been ch- sort of chasing her. He was... Uh, you know, the tornado chaser here, yeah. the weather watcher in that way, trying to find her and trying to find her lair, trying to stop her or whatever. Because um, he could hear her almost psychically yeah. saying, am I pretty? He'd be standing in like a car park talking to somebody and all of a sudden he'd look off into the distance and think and listen. Because you could hear the sound in his head of her saying, am I pretty? <laughs> yeah. So... This happened, what, two or three times up yeah. until this point where we get this, this story of what happened that night. She disappeared, uh, quote unquote, disappeared from the realm of the living. Yeah. And all of a sudden, what the voice he hears in his head is saying, aim for my throat, not am I pretty. Mm-hmm. So like they changed that so abruptly that I couldn't ignore it. And it makes you wonder, okay, in this narrative, aim for the throat now makes sense because it's what happened Mm -hmm. which makes you ask well then what the fuck was am i pretty yeah what was the point of that that was the urban legend that they've that they were taking from but now they've put their own spin on it and it makes the comment of the urban legend make no sense now. Yeah, which is fine. Sure. Yes, I'm all for creativity and I enjoy everything they've done with this show. Except that that one very important linchpin of the entire story, the am I pretty part, the mm-hmm. thing that she asks you twice is just like it's completely deleted and it makes no sense anymore at all, at all, at all, at all. When it is the most poetic thing about this ghost. Mm hmm. And all of a sudden, that she's just a horrible, crazy woman now. Yes. The aiming for the throat command is not realized 30 years ago. He He's a little boy. This is scary. In that moment of lucidity, once it passes, she grabs those very long, menacing scissors and tries to kill him. Quite him, violently, too. Violently. Yeah. He gets out of the way. She punctures right through the floor. Mm-hmm. In his desperate throes, he swipes her with the butcher's knife across the face. And that is where she got the telltale cut. So, again, it's not it's no longer a story about a husband that mutilated his wife and she became a vengeful spirit. Forever asks people if she's pretty. Right. It is now a, a child defending himself against a horribly abusive woman who he then cuts across the face and then plunges the knife into her chest and kills her. From some weird stretch of the imagination, doesn't like the sight of her horribly cut body. He puts the surgical mask on her, puts a long coat on her, and puts her in a closet. And then that's it. And then poof. And poof. He somehow... 
He the, walks out in the street and some um, old woman takes him to an orphanage. Let's pretend because they don't say. They don't indicate how he entered the foster care system. They don't indicate whatever happened to the body, why the house became condemned. Now, this is where, of course, your argument against my thinking that he's a complete idiot that has just strung everyone along with his stupidity. This is where your argument that he was so traumatized that... Uh, of course, he, they don't tell us how he got into the foster care system because he was so traumatized. He walked out of there in a fugue state and God knows where because just lucky somebody took him in, right? So he doesn't remember. I just think like I, I like that much abuse heaped on you as a child plus the trauma of having to defend yourself against your abusive mother and having to kill her easily before you're 10 years old. I think that that completely is a reasonable excuse for him to have no memories. Now, is it executed well in the movie? No. But I would buy that if it was executed better, I would be satisfied with that explanation. That is what I'll say about it. I'm I, torn because I, off, I I definitely think that he would have remembered at least a little more of that. Given, given the fact that, again, this goes back to the problem of her, of him seeking out her. If he, if she had come into this herself and felt a massive amount of responsibility about Mika's disappearance and then took it upon herself to discover once and for all where this urban legend came from, what it was about, and if it was possible to find her and through her investigation discovered him and had to force him along with her on this fucking adventure so he could face down his mother, a woman who he's been avoiding even thinking about his entire life. That is how you fix that narrative. I like it when you rewrite movies, Wes. That's my favorite thing you do. <laughs> that is not... That's not... No, it's not. <laughs> I just think that that would make for... like. Oh, yeah. it would make me feel a lot better about and, his forgetting everything. Look, look very if you're, you're going to fucking change it anyways, if you're going to make it a story about abuse and about an abusive spirit attack, like latching itself onto other women, forcing them to hurt the people that they're most uh, in, in charge of, and then ironically getting women who are abusive naturally to their daughters now giving everything to protect them from harm. That is compelling enough for me that I'll accept those changes to the urban legend. But sure. if you're going to execute it poorly, then you're going to get a lot of criticism from me, at the very least, about how, you know, you could have really... If they had changed the story to a little bit more similar to what I was talking about, mm -hmm. this would be one of my favorite J-horror movies ever. I like this movie a lot, but it's definitely not one of my favorites. No, and I think that if it had been handled a little more delicately, yeah. and that's almost a little more uh, controversial, too, mm -hmm. um, I think, and it's got a little more intrigue, this mm -hmm. might have been a more popular film, because I've just never heard of it, really. Once they go to the Red Roof house and go to the closet miraculously the body's not there i don't know why they dun, dun, dun. i don't know why he would open a house that's been condemned where a body was left by the way no one seemed to ever investigate it or i don't know it's super flimsy but if a murder had taken place there and there was a body there no the body's still not there 30 years later okay it's gone they open up the closet but they notice that 
oh, there's a broken bit in the back of it. And yeah, it's the, all kind of weirdly boarded up. Weirdly boarded up. So they go down there and, oh, they found a basement, a sub-basement with, well, Mika, the kid kidnapped, and the other children that had been snatched up. Unfortunately, one of the, the young boys was murdered. Just And it was weird because I didn't quite understand why Mika, who was taken second was spared and a child that was taken after her wasn't spared was cut and let go yeah and another boy that was the the first boy that was taken was killed and dropped off he looked like bruised all over and my in my brain i was like he was just hugged to death so i don't know if that's true (laughs) it's so cute in my version of it but it was really I was like, well, why is Mika being... And, and then, and then of course, my brain just says, okay, Wes, Mika's spared because that's the fucking narrative. Maybe Mika's spared because she had been injured and already had, like, a sore on the side of her mouth from abuse and was quite battered up. So I maybe would have, that's... I would have accepted that and agree with you there, but if they'd thrown out one fucking line of dialogue about it, that would have helped. I know what you mean. I know Just what you mean. one fucking line. Throw it out there. That or maybe if Nobu would have thrown out one line of dialogue that he was traumatized and maybe didn't remember everything as clearly as I think that he should. <laughs> maybe that well, would help. Too. now we get to see the Scissor Woman in all her fucking glory because she is now facing off. We've seen her struggle with people before, but now she is in a room with like two adults and uh, and and uh, Mika after she spared, and she fucks them up. Holy shit! Just sta- relentless, relentless stabs like is cutting like, people's Achilles tendons and just ramming her scissors into their sides. A lot of the adults in this have a really funny way of not really reacting when they're watching another person getting stabbed or kidnapped. Just kind of standing there like clenched fists or protecting their children by just standing in front of them, but not really doing anything else. The scissor woman just dead shots, boom, like one punch right in the face, you're done. I'm going to walk over here, one punch in the face, you're fucking done. And then I'm just going to kick you. Like I got all the time in the world, just kick, kick, kick. And the second you try to get up again, she just kicks you again. She's wearing heels, mind you. Yeah, real pointy ones. Yeah. Real pointy ones. I kind of like that about her, too. And she's not kicking daintily. She's kicking to hurt. And she's kicking over and over and over, almost like an automatic response of just kick, kick, kick. I like that about her, too. And I like that she does just attack, mostly just attack. She doesn't stand there like a lot of ghosts. Somewhat in Asian horror, more blame lies in North American horror, where a crazy looking spirit like this will stand for 10 minutes just looking cool and tilting their head around and staring at you with their crazy eyes and looking cool. Did I mention looking cool? Because they stand there looking cool. She doesn't stand there looking cool a lot. She goes for the throat. Well, she wants you to go for her throat, but she does attack quite readily instead of just standing there posturing. And I like that a lot about her. Um, I found with the kicking was almost part of like the automatic response of the coughing, the automatic response that these mothers are having when they're slapping their children and sometimes don't even know why or mean to or want to and wish they could stop, but still smack their children. She stands there kicking this body at one point just over and over and over like she can't stop either. It's another automatic response. It's crazy to me how 
physical a spirit she is, though. But I think that comes from the idea that she is possessing a human body because she can physically interact with people. Completely. Completely physically interact with them in in a way, completely in a way where she may as well just be alive. Yeah, because what we're actually looking at, if you think about it, it is that person with this hologram, in a way, of the spirit over top. Mm-hmm. So we think we're seeing the spirit, but what we're actually seeing is that human body that she's possessing. Yeah. yeah. And and very much like in other more famous J-horror films like Sadako, they don't really ex- they don't really ever say what she does to them. Yeah, it's just scares them to death basically i <laughs> like in fallen too that's another one where he's possessing other people's bodies and can jump from person to person um i, I like that and i wish in a way that she would have been able to jump from person to person a little quicker like mm-hmm. instead of taking one person's body until they die basically. that's actually an interesting point because they don't indicate if she can leave leave that body yeah well like well why i guess why would she want to if she's really trying to enact her Revenge, and I guess there is no way to exercise her, so to speak. So she's not going to get scared out of that body. Oh no! And she's not posturing, and she's not standing there trying to convince you how cool she looks. So she's not going to do these fun parlor tricks, like being able to jump body to body to scare you, freak you out, or impress you. So okay, sure. I think my favorite thing about that house, aside from how cool it looks, and that it's yet another thing that Nobu doesn't remember that they had a basement, which is kind of funny to me, um, is that it's at Child Beck Hill. And I'm like, they might as well call it Pied Piper Lane, like child back, <laughs> child back in. Um, all the kids are ending up there because she attacks and collects children, mm-hmm. beckoning children, it child is pretty, back hill. And that was hilarious. Egregious. I didn't put that together. And this is the second time I've seen the movie. And then you said that. I was like, wow, I never, I never put that together the first time I saw this. What a weird name for a hill. It doesn't sound very Japanese. Child back. It could have been the translation. I don't know. There was a sign that said "child back." Oh, oh no, it was it was subtitled as well. Never mind. I don't know. I'd have to watch it again. Yeah. It is watchable, againable. I, I like did the... enjoy this, even with my gripes about the fact that they stone cold stop the whole "am I pretty?" question, which was so romantic to me. Or not mm-hmm. romantic. I hate that idea. Um, poetic. Yeah. To me, um, and swap it out so abruptly for aim for my throat this seems to be almost like a red herring about how to destroy the ghost Mm -hmm. because nobara basically thinks well if in her madness she all she wants to do is beat beat people like just beat them and cut them with scissors and just be a monster when she's lucid she explains well you can cut my head and maybe now the am i pretty question has been omitted and now it's just aim for the throat perhaps she is almost begging him to finally finish her off do what he couldn't do 30 years ago again apparently that's why ghosts haunt people because they want to be figured out and put to rest right so again uh, again some dialogue to indicate that would have been fucking nice. Mika's mother now at the house because she put clues together that were already on the sheet that she had. That was just like a... She's operating at the same level as Nobru. That's it's, it's true. It's all consistent. She gets possessed. <laughs> Nobra, uh They finally kind of get the handle on her after like fucking... Nobra gets fucked up. Like he can't even walk anymore. Somehow he manages to find the strength to tackle her to the floor or sort of like 
knock her down and then cut her head off. Finally decapitating her and that's the end of the spirit. Nope, that didn't work. I mean, in a very horror movie way, you think everything's fine. Everyone gets away. Teachers... Except all the moms. Except all the moms. (laughs) They all get killed. Uh, Nobura is left in the basement, assumingly to die because he has wounds on him that you need a fucking doctor to fix. Yeah. And as she's being killed, the same thing that Harold, her uh, resurgence, another earthquake hits and... Things collapse over the doorway down to that basement. So he's basically trapped down there, whether he could get out with medical attention or not, right? Exactly. Well, the, the school teacher is finally reunited with her daughter, uh, the, the little girl. Yeah, she goes to apologize to her daughter that wouldn't talk to her anymore. A little tiny kid, too. She's super small, yeah. super young. And she all of a sudden gets a coughing fit and, oh, shit, she's possessed. Yeah. But she's kind of like a weird hybrid. She doesn't totally change into the slip mouth woman she kind of just gets a slit on her mouth and then the scissors appear credits creepy very Very creepy creepy. a nice ending i liked it a lot that even though you decapitate her now i'm wondering if we're missing something in the translation who knows if am i pretty sounds phonetically similar to aim for my throat i don't know these I don't, things I, I do i'd not, have to re-listen i don't think so i think honestly or that. maybe everyone else was still hearing her say am i pretty and he only nobru because he was privy to her original making as a ghost and a revenge spirit only he was hearing aim for my throat so that only worked for him to kill her that one time and it didn't really spell the end of the slip mouth woman who knows if there is something lost in the translation maybe not probably not but maybe that would help that would definitely help but i need lines of dialogue for that (laughs) for me to believe that i'm all for open interpretations of films but i don't think that this is one of those scenarios i honestly think that they made some changes to the urban legend to make it function as drama. Yeah. And I don't think they were overly concerned with how that would actually affect the overall story. Because it almost seems like the beginning of the movie, they had all these conceits set up already by the urban legend. And then they added a bunch of extra stuff. So you have a movie now about what they whatever they wanted to be around. Mm-hmm. And they don't really fit all that well because you haven't explained what was wrong with this woman. Is it a simple matter of she's just crazy and abusive and she it was a really bad cold? Was it a really bad cold? What was it? Yeah, what was afflicting her? What was the cough about? Why did she become a revenge spirit? Why did she care that she was pretty at first? Yeah, why did she care that she was pretty at first? Why couldn't he remember any details? Why? Did she come back now, 30 years later? What was the earthquake indicating? There's a lot of questions that oh, are not yeah. answered. Oh, oh, also, one thing we forgot to mention. It did eventually talk about what happened to his brother and sister. Their bodies, heavily decomposed, been there for 30 years. Their bodies were... In the basement. In the basement. Yeah, that he hadn't known about when he was younger. Yeah. It does leave a lot of questions. And luckily, it's... It's still a cool movie, right? It's, it's a so cool movie. So you can movie. easily watch them and discount all of these hanging questions. And, you know, as much as I had a lot of laughs, uh, really badly <laughs> timed laughs at really inappropriate things at times. Yeah. Or my viciously painful eye rolling at Nobru and his stupidity. Uh, us, like, aside from all of that, it is super, super enjoyable anyway. I had a lot of fun watching it. Mm-hmm. Even with all these things that don't fit, 
and yeah. things that make you go hmm things that make you go hmm oh hmm. god i thought that's you were doing the song no i wasn't <laughs> uh yeah no i I, t- I definitely enjoyed this and i like to think that maybe at the end when she comes back all of a sudden it would that would be what would lead you into carved two mm-hmm. but it's an origin story isn't it carved two takes place in 1979 and again throws more chaffed in the lore oh does it okay so from what i've read about the synopsis online because yeah, i didn't even seen it. i didn't even know that there was a sequel and now that I know that there's a sequel, I really want to watch it. Mm-hmm. Initially, I wanted to watch it because I wanted to see if perhaps they would illuminate some of the things that didn't make sense about this movie. Mm-hmm. And then maybe I would like this movie more. Because I've done that before. Sometimes when there's a movie and I'm like, well, what about this? What about this? I don't understand. And then there's a sequel that explains a lot of it. I'm like, oh, well, now I'm fine because this will get explained in the sequel. That being said... I also get kind of annoyed at that kind of mentality because... Ooh, Why didn't you do this in the first place? Yeah, you arrogant yeah. fucks. You were so convinced that you were going to get a sequel that you were just like, we'll save it all for the sequel. That or maybe no. It's just that creative curve that didn't quite make a full round and they left a lot of loose threads and a lot of plot holes and needed to make the sequel to fix it. I don't know if it's a if it's a symptom of arrogance entirely. I know that sometimes when you're writing narratives and if you have a lot of hands in how everything's going, like if you're making a movie and you're directing it and you're writing it, I'm not saying that's what's happened here, but a lot of the times you're so familiar with the story, everything's so ingrained in your fucking psyche because it has to be. When you're making when you're writing a book, when you're making a movie, whatever, this story is your whole fucking life. You're living, breathing, and shitting it for however many months or years until it's fucking finished. And sometimes you'll lose sight of obvious fucking plot holes or confusing bits because they're not plot holes to you because in your you have connected all of the fucking dots. Yeah, yourself. you know the end game. So, and, and and you know the answer to that plot yeah. hole. You know the answer to that question. Well, what where were they when this was happening? In your mind, you're like, well, they were over here and this is why and this is why I know that and blah blah blah. So you connect all these dots yourselves, but if it's not on if it's not in the final product, the only person that knows that is you. Mm-hmm. And so it can people can find walls and they'll bump into them because it won't make sense to them. So I think that's why it's always good to have a lot of eyes on things sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. That's what proofing is all about. And for screenings and stuff like that. Absolutely. Source screenings and. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that this movie like had such a strong premise and the only thing that weakens it is some extra shit that they added. The things that they added, I don't think were necessary, but if they were necessary and 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 with the shit that they added, there's good shit in there oh, for that I sure. like. I just want it executed more smoothly. And maybe what I'm bumping into, honestly, is what I discussed before, is that it doesn't follow the discovery investigation conclusion. I'm fine with it not following that to the contrary. Me but too, I me. just wish they would have wove it backwards. Yeah. Through the story. They did a little bit with the, the the illness, the coughing and stuff like that. That was worked cool. in really well. That's cool, yeah. But a lot of the other things that they added in weren't worked in as smoothly. I, I'm, I don't know. I'm fine with that. Not having the traditional 
problem investigation solution scenario. Because as much as I like the library scenes, I worry that they would have taken the lazy way out into a great big expo dump. A big steaming expo dump. I got a big steaming expo dump for you. Oh? Yeah, it's the next uh, movie that we're doing. Do you remember what it is? No. <laughs> the Reanimator. Really? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It's the Reanimator. That's what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> So look forward to the classic interpretation of the Lovecraftian horror. Herbert West, Reanimator. And a little more gore this time. We're ramping up toward Halloween. Halloween with a little more blood and guts, thank God. Because I, I, I enjoy a little bit of goony splatter here and there. <laughs> You know, one thing I'm really glad about, though, is that they didn't... When I'm thinking slit mouth woman, okay? I'm thinking slit face, obviously. That's just where my brain was going with that. So they didn't make it, like, overly sexual. They didn't sexualize her whatsoever, even in the slightest. So I don't know if that sort of thing registers on many people's minds. Uh, I'm sure it registers in a lot of women's minds, though, because slit is a euphemism for a vagina. And I'm really glad they didn't go into it. <laughs> the look on your face. I am so sorry. You look mortified. You look as if I'm talking out of a slit mouth cunt face. Oh, you poor man. I'm sorry you have to put up with me. I'm so sorry. <laughs> on that note, I'm ending the show. <laughs> on that note, I'm Wes Knight. I'm typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air. <laughs>